Okay. Oh, well, that was a bit of an adventure. Uh, my apologies to everybody for the uh, brief confusion here this evening. I, uh, uh, yeah, there was some brief confusion. Ever have one of those situations where apparently you think and plan about doing something so much that you create a memory of actually doing it? I just had that. Uh, happen to me. Happens to me fairly frequently, actually. And uh, that's totally what uh, happened there. So, yeah, I uh, I actually, like, I mean, I have a memory of changing the dates on the webinar. I don't know what happened there, but maybe it didn't, maybe I did it and it didn't save it. I don't even know. But anyway, my apologies. I thought that uh, I had fixed that, but apparently I didn't. So I emailed everybody and did everything that I could there. So hopefully we'll... Uh, We'll see what we can do. So, all right. Welcome, everybody, to uh, class number 14 now. <clears throat> uh, the class, obviously, which uh, was not originally designed to be as we exceeded the originally planned limits of our um, uh, of our schedule. Uh, remember, as I said, we have four more weeks counting uh, tonight. So, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, and I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely staying on schedule. We're gonna do two, two chapters tonight. We're gonna get to Rivendell again, uh, for to through the third phase, which means getting to Rivendell for the second time, right? So, yeah. Anyway, so that's what we're gonna do, and then next time we're gonna look at the uh, the next chapter of projections and stuff, which is super fun. It's my, my my favorite part of uh, the drafts, uh, and then we're gonna uh, look at the uh, uh, the next phase carrying on. So. That is the plan. Um, yeah, so uh, I should also warn you, uh, those of you who listen to my voice all the time will notice that my voice is not in quite the same register as always. I sound much more smooth and deep and very whitish here this evening. Uh, and of course, you may well be able to guess that that does not, in fact, auger well uh, uh, for my immediate future. I seem to be coming down with the uh, delightful... Uh, uh, most recent disease that my wife has brought home. So uh, I am hoping that uh, so far my voice has been okay today, but as I say, uh, signs are poor. Uh, so there is a non-zero chance that my voice might start to give out before the end of class. I'm going to try to take it easy. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I like it too, Brie. This is always my favorite part. Like right when I was getting sick, uh, I, I always have loved, uh, this, you know, I've been, I've been speaking, you know, slow and deep and melodiously all day long and kind of enjoying that. But, um, but yeah, uh, the prog prognosis is not so good. So I have, I have my hot tea. Normally I'm drinking cold tea. Uh, I, I drink cold beverages year round, but, uh, but tonight I have my hot tea with what may indeed be an overdose of honey in it. Uh, uh, it's, uh, 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 quite sugary, but that's all good too. So anyway, yeah. So, so we'll see, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Meanwhile, yeah, Yana, I agree. I totally think I should be doing vo voiceovers uh, in this uh, in this voice. I should probably like write today and tomorrow, record a bunch of instructional voiceovers. It does sound totally authoritative. Absolutely agree. Uh, yeah, yeah, cool. All right, very good. So let's um, 
let's uh, let's see what we can do here and how much we can get through because we have an important class here tonight because uh, we are looking at uh, <laughs> the as I say the the further adventures of uh, Odo Bulger uh, and <laughs> Odo Bulger of course is eventually gonna get cut right uh, and uh, and that's fine um, but. Um, like so far in the second and third phase, Odo Bulger is totally the protagonist of the draft, right? Not of the story itself, uh, but of the draft changes. Odo Bulger is just the head, absolutely the headliner, and the 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 saga of uh, you know the Odo saga in the second and third uh, phases. I have found absolutely hilarious, uh, so I was really enjoying watching it continue uh, as we. Uh, as we go forward. So let's, um, let's, let's, let's check this out, but I'm gonna have to be pretty efficient to get there. Cause the most fun, uh, Odo stuff is in the second part. Now I'd mentioned last time I, I, I did all but two of my slides last time. Um, so I wanted to finish up with these two brief touches, uh, from the end of the previous chapter before we move on. Uh, one is just a quick note that I wanted to touch on. This is so characteristically, uh, Tolkien and so characteristically Christopher as well that I just couldn't pass this over. The new moon issue. <clears throat> it is indeed so extraordinary, in view of his deep and constant awareness of all such modes and appearances, that one seeks for an explanation. Can he have intended the old moon, but have written the new moon, because he was thinking of the crescent form, characteristically the new moon, rather than the phase? This seems unlikely, and in any case, an old moon as a thin silver rind is not seen till near dawn, for the moon to have this appearance must be very near the sun. Of course, this is all uh, triggered by the fact that uh, Tolkien had made a new moon rise at a perfectly impossible time. Of course, as Christopher points out, uh, you know, uh, slivers of moon happen, whether they're new or old, uh, you know, the beginning or the end of the lunar cycle, uh, you know, when the moon is, is, is very close to the sun, which means they can only be seen, you know, crescents are only seen in the sky like that, Um uh, you know, at, at right before dawn or right uh, uh, right after sunset, depending on which way it's going. Um, and of course, Christopher's point is this is just you know he 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 finds this extraordinary because this is exactly the kind of mistake that his dad was um, was so little likely to make because Tolkien himself loved walking in, in the dark, just like the hobbits, uh, and uh, and you know knew and observed the moon pretty well. Indeed, it's one of the things that I find striking, um, and I always found striking, is the way that the, the, the descriptions Tolkien gives, not just of the landscape, which are remarkable, not just of, you know, things like moonlight and stuff like that, but the landscape in starlight. Um, and, uh, you know, as somebody who did not spend nearly as much time outside, especially at night, uh, as uh, as Tolkien did, you know, I, I remember, you know, as a child, I was always like, I don't even like, I know you can see stars, but, you know, I like the, the concept of like, what is starlight exactly? Like, what even does that look like? How can you see things by starlight? Um, uh, anyway, it, it's been, uh, uh, it, I, I, I am always really interested to see his, uh, disc so again, I, I totally am with Christopher. I don't know, but again, just how, uh, 
how worked up Christopher gets over this, trying to figure out, like, how on earth could Dad have, like, made that mistake? It's just, holy cow, I don't even know. Um, I just find it kind of adorable. So I wanted to, I wanted to, 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 to kind of mention it. I don't know the explanation. I mean, his idea of the old moon instead of the new moon makes a certain amount of sense. But, um, you know, I guess if anything, this seems to be another example of the one mistake that I think that Christopher does tend to, uh, uh, to, I think we can see him making in, in, in several places. I say this very cautiously, but, um, that he does seem to sensibly begin with the assumption that everything is consistently interlocked, right? And just as there is, there have been times in the past when I've disagreed with him, um, when he has attributed what I felt to be a greater degree of continuity among the mythology, uh, you know, as if every reference Tolkien made to the sun and moon had to fit with the astronomical mythology that he was working out, you know, in the Silmarillion material. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, but uh, but I mean, that does seem to be the kind of default register that Christopher works in. And so too here, you know, he seems to, um, uh, I mean, I get, I, I'm sure, you know, he's absolutely correct. This is a very uncharacteristic error. But again, I think it's uh, when you just kind of look at it in isolation, like he went through and made a correction in that one spot. And, you know, when making that correction and picturing the new moon, he, you know, forgot what time of night this was happening, which would be easy for it to happen if it were just a, a random change he were making, you know, not while going through the draft from beginning to end, but, uh, you know, just kind of popping in in the middle and making that change. It doesn't seem, I mean... I say it doesn't seem like that big a deal because I can so easily imagine myself making a mistake like that. But, you know, I get that it's really strange uh, for for Tolkien. Um, it's okay, Christopher. Uh, we're all right with it. Uh, the other one last detail that I wanted to touch on uh, was this other thing that gets added in the draft, um, the, the, the dreams. Now, we saw Frodo, ha- or Bingo at the time, uh, had dreams in the house of Tom Bombadil from the beginning, the first time he ever was there right? Um, there it was dreams of the pursuing uh, riders, right? The content of Frodo's dream remains the same, almost word for word, as Bingo's in the original version, except that after the words hooves thudding and wind blowing, there follows, and faint and far, the echo of a horn. This obviously echoes Gandalf's blowing of the horn at Crick Hollow, which in this text immediately precedes Frodo's dream. And that seems to be a really interesting little addition, right? He's taken, you know, so what seemed to be in the first version merely an anxiety dream, right? Possibly with something of a premonition in it, right? I'm not saying that there's nothing, you know, at all potentially preternatural, you know, or supernatural about um, about Bingo's dream in the house of Tom Bombadil. Um, but it seems at, at least sort of equal parts uh, prophecy and anxiety, right? I mean, he's been pursued by the writers. He has a dream about writers pursuing them. I mean, uh, you know, he has an insight that the writers are after them. Well, of course they're after them, right? I mean, he should, he, you know, there's no reason he can't know that. Um, but um, notice the change, right? With that one little change, with the addition of faint and far the echo of a horn, it changes the context of the dream entirely. Now he's not merely dreaming about the thing that's preoccupying his waking thoughts when he goes to bed, which is, of course, a normal standard kind of uh, of, of dream. Um, they had a special uh, word for that. That's an insomnium, uh, as the Latin word for it in the Middle Ages. Um, they had a whole 
uh, whole system classifying different uh, different kinds of dream. And so when you uh, uh, when you when, you know like if you're a if you're a woodsman, you know, and you have a dream about chopping wood, you know, that is when, when, when the things that occupied your thoughts while you were awake continue to occupy you while you're asleep, that is technically called an insomnium. It's not a significant dream. It's just the, your mind continuing to dwell on those things. That's what Bingo's dreams seem to be. Now you'll notice this is news, right? This is, uh, uh, he is perceiving from, through his dreams, he is perceiving from afar the thing that's actually going on, right? Um, so, because I mean, at, at, at that moment, perhaps Gandalf is blowing the horn in Buckland, uh, and the Black Riders are 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 being driven in rout uh, by the running horde of Bucklanders, which image I still just absolutely love. Um, and that puts Frodo's dream on an entirely different footing, right? Um, now it is there. There can be no question at all that there is this kind of prophetic significance of Frodo's dream. He is being, through his dreams, by some means or other, he is being kept abreast of current events, right? And we see that this continues, right? Not always chronologically linked, right? I mean, the, the, of course, we're going to see, he's, you know, the, the dream that he's going to have of Gandalf imprisoned on Orthanc, Right, the vision, you know, the picture that he's going to get in his dream about that. Now, as Gandalf points out at the Council of Elrond in the published text, it's late in coming to him. Right, it's not contemporary. He's not seeing what is going on across the world um, at that moment, which is what he is here because it's not across the world, but still, you know, uh, a couple dozen miles away. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I, I I think that this is a, a really a really interesting development, and of course, um, his dreams, Frodo's dreams. Are really fascinating. So it's uh, this was to me a really fun uh, sort of step to watch. Um, yeah, the contents of the Hobbit's dreams, John, are really fascinating. Um, but um, yeah, well, of course, I'm gonna I'm I'm looking forward to talking about the dreams and tracking the dreams uh, as I go through it in exploring the Lord of the Rings, uh, looking at the published text, uh, and when we get to some other references, we'll talk about it here. But John, that's why I'm so interested in this touch, right? To see how. Uh, Tolkien's concept of the dream seems to be developing, right? As uh, you know, the, the the first time it told us something about Bingo, right? Now it seems to tell us something about somebody else, right? About the other power that's at work here. Um, okay, now on to today. So the first question as we arrive in Bree. Uh, is what the heck are the Rangers, right? And Christopher presents us with uh, with uh, information for this at the very beginning. And we have three different sort of possibilities, right? Uh, here's uh, here's the first one. So you know this this is you know clearly as Christopher explains, uh, Tolkien's um, his ideas aren't fully formed about this, right? You know he's still kind of throwing out ideas, and so we get this one idea thrown out: No other men lived so far west, nor so near the Shire by a hundred leagues and more. That is than the Bremen. No settled people, that is, for there, no settled people, that is, for there were the rangers, mysterious wanderers that the men of Bree regarded with deep respect and a little fear, since they were said to be the last remnant of the kingly people from beyond the seas. But the rangers were few and seldom seen, and roamed at will in the wild lands eastward, even as far as the misty mountains. Okay, so this idea that, hey, the rangers are the remnants of Numenor, 
um, is there, right? That, 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 now it's, as we see with so many of the ideas, which we recognize as the place where Tolkien is eventually going to settle down, he doesn't settle down there right away, but we see that this idea is being kicked around. But now remember the context of this, the backstory of this, um, we don't have any of the story of the Dunedain, right? So in a sense, this is the same as the final concept, of course, but there's an important sense in which it isn't the same concept, uh, as we get in the Lord of the Rings. And what I mean by that is when we think about the Rangers, right, um, we can't help but think about <clears throat> the history of Gondor and Arnor, right? Um, you know, when, uh, f- when, when, when they're called in the Fellowship of the Ring, when Frodo calls them the people of the old kings, right, we sort of naturally think of the kings of Arnor, right? The, those who used to be king in this realm, and now, you know, their kingdom has passed, and they're now a, a wandering people, right? Um, remember how that gets set up for us in the published Fellowship of the Ring by that little vision that they get when talking to Tom Bombadil, right, of that procession of 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 kings and chieftains, right? And the last one with a, with a star on his brow. Uh, that's... Uh, um, again, we see that in the published text. So when we hear about the people of the kings, we're, we're prompted with that, right? Um, we've even heard in the prologue, if we were paying attention, about the old kings that used to be kings, right? But the king, you know, there's been no king for a long time. Um, so it is the kings of the ancient history of the Third Age that we tend, I think, chiefly to associate. Now, of course, they're associated with Numenor, right, and the sort of mythic significance of the island of Numenor as well. But, um, but, it's, but it's not... I think the emphasis that we get in the, in the published Lord of the Rings is not the one that we get here. Last remnant of the kingly people from beyond the sea. See, all Numenorians are kingly. It doesn't mean they were kings here. They're just kingly. That's just how they are. You know, they are the great people from Numenor. Um... So, I mean, all of them are compared to the Brelanders and the other lesser men of Middle-earth like kings. Um, and that fits with what we see in The Lost Road, right? The Numenor story, uh, you know, the fall of Numenor and The Lost Road, the Numenor story which Tolkien was developing and working out uh, right before he shifted to The Lord of the Rings uh, and did the Quenta Silmarillion, uh, or mostly did the Quentin Somerillion uh, in, uh, uh, in 1937, right, again, right before he began this draft. Um, in the Lost Road, in, in that age, that's what, what we had. That we didn't have any history, any future history. The only nugget of historical event that we got from the post-Numenorian exilic period in Middle-earth is the Last Alliance, right? So we know that some people escaped from Numenor and came back to Middle-earth and they dwelt among the peoples of Middle-earth though they're different, right? They're kingly and they're preoccupied with things like building towers on the coasts and trying to sail the straight path back to Numenor and to look for Numenor and all that all that kind of thing, right? Um, 
but you know the 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 like but there arose among them this one you know great uh uh lord who allied himself with Gilgalad and you know the two of them went and threw down Sauron that's like an isolated story um it's not part of like this big huge picture history um don't forget that of course Gondor is not even a a shadow on the horizon yet based on anything that we've seen right um so there is no history of any kind of Numenorean kingdoms in Middle-earth yet. So when he talks about the kingly people, this concept of the rangers is just their Numenorean. These are the remnants of of the Numenoreans. So it's not, he's not connecting these people to a past uh, in Middle-earth that's well established, right? Um, The world of uh, the world of 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 you know what will be Arnor, you know this 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 uh, region of Eriador, right? It's not like I mean I think about of course you I mean you guys know I've been doing a lot of Lord of the Rings online streaming, you know, and one of the things I really love about the landscape and the Lord of the Rings online is when you go around Breeland and all those areas in Eriador, you're always stumbling across Arnorian ruins, right? You can see that everywhere there is the evidence that. A great kingdom of men was once here, though it's now past, right? Uh, and all you get are these stray ruins lying here and there. That's not the world. Um, at least there's no evidence that that's really the world here. There are some ruins and stuff. We get some ancient kingdoms. Um, but again, we don't have that sense of a settled third age history um, behind these folks. Um, it's just their... Uh, uh, their the the quality of the uh, rangers that they are they are they are they're, they're the kingly people from new so in a sense this is not about connecting it with a third age the rangers with a third age past putting them in the context of a third age past rather this is about giving those Numenorians that he fear you know that he wrote about in the lost road and the fall of Numenor giving them a future. Right. Um, I mean, one unanswered question of the earlier mythological stuff that he was doing in 1936 and 37 is what came of the Numenorians, Right. If, what happened to them eventually? Um, well, here we go. Right now we're beginning to get that question uh, answered. Um, OK. So this is theory number one about Rangers. Theory number two. In the wild lands east of Bree, there roamed a few unsettled folk, men and hobbits. These the people of the Bree land called rangers. Some of them were well known in Bree, which they visited fairly frequently, and were welcome as bringers of news and tellers of strange tales. Okay, so in this version now, the rangers are not the Numenorians in exile, right, or the descendants of the Numenorians in exile. They're just roamers, right? Um, unsettled folk, both men and hobbits, right? So, so the, 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 they can equally be rangers. So here again, we return in a sense, um, though obviously it's qualified by the fact that men are included in the number as well, to this idea of an unsettled population of hobbits who live off to the east, right? And that those are the rangers. So again, think about that line from, um, from Butterbur, right? From phase one, um, you know, there's no accounting for east or west, right? Meaning the rangers and the shire folk. Um, so first, we're going to make the rangers into into Numenorians. Then we're going to hold on to that possibility of uh, the rangers just being just being hobbits. Um, exactly, Kimber. Yeah, uh, rangers more of a way of life 
not uh, not connected to race. Absolutely, that seems to be the idea here. And then there's sort of this halfway place, right? Later in the chapter, Butterbur answers Frodo's question about Trotter thus. I don't rightly know. He is one of the wandering folk. Rangers, we call them. Not that he is really a ranger, if you understand me, though he behaves like one. He seems to be a hobbit of some kind. He has been coming in pretty often during the past twelve months, especially since last spring, but he seldom talks. Um, and this is really a, a, this sort of interest. Okay, so he's we call him a ranger, but he's not really a ranger. So here it seems that there is, in fact, a racial identity, right? Rangers are a particular subspecies of men. And so to call a hobbit a ranger is merely metaphorical, right? Um, not that he really is a ranger, obviously, right? Um, and you can say he seems to be a hobbit of some kind, which is an interesting thing to say. Like, yeah, yeah, he does seem to be a hobbit, right? He speaks as if that's doubtful, right? Can't you tell? Aren't you sure whether or not he's a hobbit, Butterbur? Um, but in any case, he's, uh, uh, he's not clearly... A ranger that, yeah, so Stephen, exactly. Here, ranger does not seem to be a way of life. It doesn't seem to be a behavior pattern. Um, but it kind of is also, right? So the rangers, strictly speaking, are a, a subset of, of humans, right? But they'll call Trotter a ranger because he's like the rangers. So it kind of is the way that he behaves, right? So the image that we get here is of uh, the rangers as being a more definite group, right? It's not just being a way of life, right? To be an unsettled vagabond in this area, qualify, you know, uh, put you in the category ranger, whether you're human or, or hobbit. Um, we're not there anymore. But then again, we ha- so rangers are a more discrete unit, but others can be associated with them if they live a similar lifestyle, right? So, so the important thing, of course, is Trotter himself. Um, Trotter is different from the other rangers, right? But he's associated with the other rangers. So he's still a hobbit, but he's associated with the rangers. Um, and that this seems to be a, a really interesting kind of uh, um, transitional phase. Of course, we're still miles from Aragorn, son of Arathorn, but uh, uh, but you can begin to see the foundations being laid for that change eventually eventually uh, 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 being made. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, Carita, I think it's um, it's a really interesting um, it's a really interesting question about, you know, Carita uh, asks, what would a ranger would a ranger still be a ranger if they didn't range? That is, if uh, you know some kinsfolk of rangers settled down and started farming or something, would they still be rangers, or would they? Because see, see, Carita, in definition two, no, they wouldn't be, presumably, right? Um, or maybe they would. Maybe they would for a generation or two, and eventually they would cease to be considered rangers, possibly. But here it seems that they would, because this seems to be much more of a, of a, a sort of a racial thing. Like the, there is a people, right? And that's what seems to me to be betrayed by Butterbur's words. Not that he really is, right? I mean that that implies there's a clear definition, right? You can tell whether somebody really is a ranger or not. Um, 
it's not just a, ca- a, a vague category. Um, so, so I think, Karita, in definition three here, my sense is that, yeah, if you're a ranger, you're a ranger, whether you're a ranger or not, right? Uh, to the people of Bree, you'll still be, you'll still be a ranger. Um, whereas, yes, Stephanie Trotter uh, seems to be a hobbit, but behaves like a ranger. Um, Tony asks, are they still rangers if they spend all their time sitting around campfires? Especially then, Tony, absolutely. Um, yeah, sorry, Lotro humor. Okay, um, in the game, you always find rangers in Eriador sitting by campfires, and it becomes this sort of inside joke that they're, they're like, guarding everywhere, so you see them on lookout posts and everything, and they're, uh, but you almost never see them doing anything. They're always sitting there looking out, and, and you, as the player, go and do things, so that's sort of the inside Lotro joke about the rangers sitting by fires. Um, okay, uh, so let's, uh, let's, let's keep going. Now, here is where we begin to get the interactions with the uh, with the Black Riders, our first indications of the Black Rider activity in Bree. Uh, and I don't know about you, but that was one of my favorite elements, one of the things that fascinated me most about this chapter, um, was looking at the way in which Tolkien developed the interactions between the Black Riders and Bree. Um, and not just the different details and things there, but the entire way that he conceived that story, right? And we'll come to that in a minute, but here's our first sign that sort of more is going on here, and that's the full, the the much fuller than we get in the in the in the published uh, version uh, conversation between Harry Goatleaf, the uh, the guard at the West Gate, and the hobbits when they arrive at Bree. Hobbits said the man, and what's more, Shire hobbits from the sound of your talk. Well, if that is not a wonder, Shire folk riding by night and journeying east. He's got to find a fox to share his amazement with. He removed the bars slowly and let them ride through. And what makes it stranger, he went on. There's been more than one traveler in the last few days going the same way and inquiring after a party of four hobbits on ponies. But I laughed at them and said there had been no such party and was never like and was never likely to be. And here you are. But if you go on to old Butterbur's, I don't doubt you'll find a welcome and more news of your friends, maybe. Now... The really interesting thing here, of course, is who's he talking about, right? Frodo and the others immediately are thinking about the Black Riders. Um, and, uh, of course, it's it's rather a chipper greeting, right? And, of course, we don't know exactly at this point yet how um, authentically friendly uh, 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 Harry is being. But it does seem, James, exactly, as James Stevens points out, more than one traveler in the last few days inquiring after a party of four hobbits on ponies. Um, so even if we count the plural friends in the sense of Gandalf and Odo, who have in fact come through here already, right? Um, it seems that we're talking about two discrete parties who have come into Bree, inquiring after hobbits riding out of the Shire. So whether he's just talking about the Black Riders or whether he's talking about Gandalf and also the Black Riders, clearly the Black Riders are included in that. Um, and this, again, gives us a, 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 an interesting kind of insight into the nature of the Black Riders and how they interact with people. We've clearly seen that they're a good deal more articulate, right? Even Gam, Sam, uh, Gaffer Gamgee's conversation uh, seemed to, to suggest that, right? They have a strange accent and look funny and they don't show their faces, but what do you expect from foreigners, right? Um, uh, anyway, here... The way that he he looks neither 
like somebody who is totally freaked out by the riders and terrified, right? You know, he doesn't like, he, you know, he's not all uh, conspiratorial with them. I'm like, oh, these horrifying creatures have come and asked for you, right? You know, we don't we don't get that. Nor do we get the like, I am horrified and intimidated and cowed. You know, like my my will is suppressed and I am you know I I am I am serving my new masters in horror and fear, right? We don't get that either. We get chatty. You know, oh, some friends of yours came. You know, maybe you'll find some more news of your friends at the pony, right? And um, he's playing it fairly casual. We'll see Harry's actual reaction to the Black Riders uh, later on. But, um, uh, yeah, exactly, Stephanie. His The fact that he says he laughs at them. I mean, that doesn't seem to fit either one, right? Either... You know, I am under the oppressive will of the riders, or I am terrified of the riders and trying to work against them. In neither way is this casual mentioning of uh, of laughing at them. Does that does that really fit? In other words, they seem to have less of an impact on Harry than we might guess. Right? Um, again, we may sort of automatically think of the Black Rider, whether it's because we can't shake the movie image or whether it's, or for another reason. I mean, if we're just thinking about the Nazgul as they are when we see them in The Return of the King, right? Um, I mean, it's the same dude, right? The same dude who faces off with Eowyn and who uh, uh, confronts Gandalf marching through the gates of Minas Tirith, right? You know, old fool. Hey, my voice is good for this. Old fool. This is my hour, right? Um, I should take advantage of the opportunity to do voices like that. Um, that same dude is the guy who's coming in and talking to Harry Goatleaf at the West Gate of Bree, right? So, uh, you know, by the time we get to the end of the story, we get used to thinking of the Nazgul as extremely powerful and, you know, only a very few are able to stand in front of them and even just abide their coming, right? Um, think about how the people are scattered on the battlefields and stuff. Um, uh, anyway, so um, uh, that's again, it's tempting for us when we don't see it described to project that backwards onto Harry Goatleaf, right? If Gandalf in the gates of Minas Tirith was confronted by what he was confronted by, you know, imagining Harry Goatleaf in the, in the, at the gate of Bree uh, being confronted by the same thing, we, get, we can imagine only a, a, a fairly narrow range of reactions by Harry, and none of them seem to fit what we have here, which suggests the effect is clearly different. Whether it is that the Nazgul are themselves going to change over time, or whether it's just Tolkien's changing concept, we're not really, um, we're not really sure. Um, but, um, but anyway, that is one sort of interesting thing. Uh, the question about the ring and how the ring is acting, this is in uh, in connection, of course, with uh, uh, Frodo's... with the accident at the Prancing Pony. Uh, and this is Christopher talking. Uh, Frodo's feeling that the suggestion that he put on the ring came to him from outside, from someone or something in the room, is present. At first my... Which is, of course, uh, something we get in the published text as well. At first my father wrote simply that the swarthy-faced fellow, Bill Fernie, slipped out, the, slipped out of the door, followed by one of the Southerners, not a well-favored pair. But by a change that seems little later in the writing of the manuscript, this became... Very soon he slipped out of the door, followed by Harry the gatekeeper, and by one of the Southerners. The three had been whispering together in a corner most of the evening... 
For a moment, he wondered if the ring itself had not played him a trick, or perhaps obeyed orders other than his own. He did not like the looks of the three men that had gone out, especially not the dark-eyed changed to squint-eyed southerner. Um, I'm not sure what to do with this. I'm not sure what we're... Sp- the, the idea of the ring responding to an outside will... Um, it can't be responding to a command, necessarily, right? Like, there's a black rider nearby, he knows that he can tell the ring is right there, and so he is, like, you know, telepathically in communication with the ring and saying, like, ring, uh, you know, like like one of the Nazgul texting the ring and being like, ring, you know, reveal yourself now. Um, or ring bearer, put the ring on, that'd be an awesome idea. Um I don't think it can be quite as direct as that, uh, because if I mean that suggests a much greater level of of uh, of certainty about the presence of the ring. If the Nazgul were that close and that certain that the ring was right there, you got to think that this whole thing kind of turns out differently, right? Um, Their uncertainty is, of course, the whole point of Gandalf's new plan, which we'll get to in a second. Um, So, uh, okay, so. What else? Um, what else do we see? Um, the suggestion that he put on the ring came to him from outside, or from someone or something in the room. Uh, and in the second version, there perhaps obeyed orders other than his. For a moment, he wondered if the ring itself had not played him a trick, or perhaps obeyed orders other than his own. Um, it does seem that second one. I, I I believe, if I'm understanding it correctly, obeyed orders other than his own. He's talking about the ring. The ring obeyed orders other than his own. So he, Frodo, is the is the ring bearer, right? Um, is he giving orders to the ring? Is somebody else who Bill Fernie? I mean, it's a little unclear exactly what's going on there. I don't really understand that. The someone or something in the room seems to me to be an indicator, um, and it certainly as it remains in the, in the final text, Frodo's feeling that the suggestion that he put on the ring came to him from outside, from someone or something in the room, seems to me a description of the influence of the ring on Frodo himself. That is, we've seen the ring influence Frodo. But when the ring influenced Frodo at other times, he wasn't aware that he was being influenced by the ring at the time. These thoughts and images pop up in his head, like the image of putting on the ring and escaping and leaving his friends to die in the barrow, for instance, right? But when that comes to his head, he is not aware that it is being brought to his head by an outside force. It's his own thought. He rejects it as his own thought. Um, He might resist it, or argue against it, or argue for it, but he thinks it's his own thought. Here, the question seems to be not about the ring interacting with Frodo in a different way, but of Frodo understanding or perceiving the interaction with the ring in a different way. That at least is how I would take that first reference from outside, from someone or something in the room. The ring is the other thing in the room, outside his brain, that is suggesting to him that he put on the ring. The more explicit, and to me much more puzzling, concept of obeying orders 
other than his own, both halves of that, both the obeying orders. Well, who's order? Who's ordering the ring exactly? And what are they ordering it to to do precisely? And what, I mean, how are they giving orders to the ring? And secondly, even other than his own, like he gives orders to the ring. When does he gives or give orders to the ring exactly? So, um, I um, uh. Yeah, I mean, Brian Dimmick suggests that, I'll, you know, uh, with what Frodo knows of the ring, it's reasonable that he would think it could take orders, um, since the purpose of the ruling ring is to control the other rings. Right, but it's not like he's trying to do that yet, or, or, or necessarily even thinks in that way about the ring. Um, uh, I mean, the sense that we have of the ring this uh, is not... The reason I guess I pause about it is simply that that doesn't seem to fit the way that any of them, Bilbo or Frodo, ever related to the ring, right? Um, they viewed the ring as as useful. And even now, when Frodo uses it, he uses it to make him invisible. Like, it's the effect that it has when you put it on. It's not like, first you put it on, then you will yourself to become invisible, and it makes you invisible. No, you automatically become invisible, whether you know it or not, right? As, of course, Bilbo discovers when he first puts on the ring by, uh, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, by accident and doesn't realize that he's invisible until Gollum runs past him. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't, um, I don't really, I don't really fully understand where Tolkien is going with this here. Um, but it does seem, just to kind of speak vaguely of where Tolkien's mind seems to be going there, you know, where he seems to be pushing the story at that moment is more of this kind of external conflict. The ring perceiving others around that it wants to reveal Frodo to, that wants to reveal itself to, and them also, the, the, the pressure of the will of his enemies, whether it's the will of the Nazgul or even perhaps the will of the, you know, the, 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 the malevolent, though much less intimidating, will of Bill Fernie and Harry Goatleaf in the squint-eyed southerner, um, whose desire for him to make a fool of himself and to reveal himself and to give things away that they can, uh, that will lead them to information that they can sell. Um, does that actually, are we understanding that that has an impact, that the ring responds to that in some way, to their, you know, um, their greedy desire uh, for his secret to be exposed? I, it seems kind of vague and indirect, but... Maybe, you know, maybe that's the kind of thing that he was toying with. I mean, we see the ring responding. Remember in the early days with, you know, the things like you can fool the ring. Remember that business at the beginning about how, like, you can fool the ring by giving it away at the party, right? And uh, if it's all a big joke, then you can, you know, maybe some element of that is, you know, to some extent involved here. Maybe we're seeing a relic of that kind of idea. I don't really know. But I, I find this passage sufficiently perplexing that I think it's really notable, right, as it suggests that perhaps Tolkien's concept of the ring hasn't really settled down to what it later will become. Or, of course, alternatively, it reveals the fact that Tolkien's, that our ideas about Tolkien's later ideas maybe are wrong, right? So, one way or the other, it's worth paying attention to. Okay. Now, one of the great things, of course, about the third phase is that in this uh, trip through, Gandalf has a plan. So we've, we've gotten up, you know, we didn't get this far in the second phase. Um, but of course, in the first phase, we will recall that one of the most difficult elements of the story as it was growing and developing in unexpected ways uh, in the first phase 
was Gandalf and what Gandalf is doing. Gandalf's movements and actions and messages, the push-along messages, right, um, were getting more and more untenable as the story was getting more and more serious. Um, So now we begin to see, and again, this seems to be one of the kinds of things that sort of prompted Tolkien to go back and start again anyway with the second phase. Um, So now it's fun to see how is Tolkien reconceiving Gandalf, right? And clearly, this time, Gandalf has a plan. He's not just larking on ahead with the elves. Later on, he sent for me. This is, of course, Butterbur telling the story about Gandalf. Butterbur, says he, I'm looking for some friends, four hobbits. One is a round-bellied little fellow with red cheeks, begging your pardon, and the others just young hobbits, who what, don't like look like that? They should have five ponies and a good deal of baggage. Have you seen them? They ought to have passed through Bree sometime today, unless they have stopped here. He seemed very put out when I said no such party was at the pony, and none had passed through to my certain knowledge. That's bad news, he said, tucking at his beard. Will you two, Will you do two things for me? If this party turns up, give them a message. Hurry on. Gandalf is ahead. Just that. Don't forget, because it's important. And if anyone, anyone, mind you, however strange, inquires after a hobbit called Baggins... Tell them Baggins has gone east with Gandalf. Don't forget that either, and I shall be grateful to you. The landlord paused, looking hard at Frodo. Okay. The hurry on, Gandalf is ahead. Of course, very different from the the, the quite casual uh, 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 push-on message. Don't indulge yourself and stay for days and days at the Prancing Pony, right? Keep moving, Frodo, you lazy bum. Or bingo, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so here, this is, um, uh, no, see, Jan, I don't think it's strange that Gandalf leaves such a limited message. He does, he is, he is leaving his letter with Trotter, right? Um, but even the, even as Trotter points out, even the letter that he left with Trotter, uh, he's speaking very cautiously. He's obviously taking precautions lest his messages fall into enemy hands. So he's speaking very indirectly, even when he's speaking more explicitly in in the letter. Um, so Gandalf's desire now. Uh, so so interesting. Notice how that he achieves the same sort of narrative end, right? I mean, on the one hand, obviously, for the story to proceed as it proceeded before, Tolkien clearly wants to keep the central thread. Um the, and you know that seems to be the way that we're building this story in these future drafts. The story of the Ringbearer and his friends on the way to Rivendell, right? The encounter with Trotter and Bree, the traveling with Trotter to Weathertop, the attack on Weathertop, and the subsequent flight to the Ford, including the meeting with Glorfindel, right? That's the thread. That's the central story that he's going to keep and, and, you know, do some refining of, but that's, that's, that's the central thing. Everything around that has to be altered. So the fundamental fact that Gandalf is not with them Right, that Gandalf is not with them when they're attacked at Weathertop, that he's not with them on the flight to the Ford. That still has to be the case. Now, the reason that Gandalf wasn't with them in the first draft was lame. Um, Gandalf needs a better reason not to be with them, but he still has to not be with them. Um, and so Gandalf comes up with his plan, um, overtly to lure them out of Bree and to push to to pull them on ahead and to use Odo as bait, 
the idea of Gandalf traveling with a hobbit, that he's going to make the, the best use of that, right? And pretend that Odo is Baggins in order to give them extra incentive uh, to chase after him. Um, but now notice, hurry on, Gandalf is ahead, is the message he leaves. Remember, he's being very cautious to make sure that the message that he leaves doesn't, you know, fall into other hands, right? That message, he's wants to, you know, the, the one thing that he tells Butterbur to say, and I think this is a, uh, a fun testimony to Gandalf's levels of trust for Butterbur, right? He trusts Butterbur, he doesn't think Butterbur is going to betray him, but he also doesn't trust him with any secrets, right? And in fact, the one message he gives to him is the message that he seems to quite hope Butterbur is going to spread about, right? Um, Gandalf is ahead is the message that he wants uh, uh, sort of to be in circulation. So if anybody does overhear that, it's not the end of the world, right? Um, especially if they've gotten the message about the fake Baggins. Uh, so, uh, so, and yes, Tony, he doesn't want to give him too much to remember all at once. Just the, just the two things, right? Tell the hobbits, hurry up, Gandalf is ahead. Just that. And then if anybody else, if any other queer customers come around asking for, uh, for Baggins, tell them he's gone east with Gandalf. Surely, Butterbur, you can manage to remember that. Um, then they show up. Ah, but wait a minute, said the landlord, lowering his voice. That wasn't the end of it. And that's what is puzzling me. On Monday, a big black fellow went through Bree on a great black horse, and all the folk were talking about it. The dogs were all yammering and the geese screaming as he rode through the village. I heard later that three of these riders were seen on the road by Combe, though where the other two had sprung from I couldn't say. Gandalf and his little friend Baggins went off yesterday, after sleeping late, about the middle of the morning. In the evening, just before the road gate was shut, in rode the black fellows again, or others as like them as night and dark. "'There's the black man at the door,' shouted Nob, running to fetch me with his hair all on end. Sure enough, it was. Not one, nor three, though, but four of them. One was sitting there in the twilight with his big black horse almost on my doorstep. All hooded and cloaked he was. He bent down and spoke to me, and very cold, I thought his voice sounded. And what do you think? He was asking for news of four hobbits riding east out of the Shire. Again, see, there are their friends uh, that uh, Harry Goatleaf tells them about. Um, uh Okay, so again, notice the only comment that he makes about the uh, voice of the Black Rider is that it was cold, right? He is also concerned about the proximity, right? He, he's, he's, he rides his horse all the way up to the door, right? And is looking down at him, all hooded and cloaked. In other words, mysterious, right? Again, not invisible, faceless, anything like that, just unfriendly, mysterious. It would be polite to put your hood down so they can see your face, you know, when you greet a stranger under circumstances like this. Um, so it just shows you that they're secretive and unfriendly. And, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't like the sound or the looks of him, and I answered him short. I haven't seen any such party, I said, and I'm not likely to either. What may you be wanting with them or with me? At that he sent out a breath that sent me shivering. We want news of them. We are seeking Baggins, he said, hissing out the name like a snake. Baggins is with them. If he comes, you will tell us, and we will repay you with gold. If you do not tell us, we will repay you. 
otherwise. <laughs> I love the, the vague threat. Otherwise, you sleep with the fishes. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and, and I, I, I love the, uh, the, 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 wait, what did we say? Didn't, didn't we agree years ago what the, um, adjectival form of Nazgul should be? Nazgulish. That's right. Nazgulish. Um, the, uh, uh, I love the Nazgulish syntax here, right? If he comes, you will tell us and we will repay you with gold. Right. If he comes, you will do this and we will do that. Right. Uh, you know, I, this is not a request. You know, this is not I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. If he comes, you're going to do this and I'm going to reward you. So, you know, it's if you do this, we'll repay you with gold. Right. That's not how it works. Right. If he comes, you're going to do this and then you're going to get gold. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, But again, so here, this is the first, this is the longest quotation we've gotten from them, right? We heard them say at Crick Hollow, you know, uh, uh, open in the name of the Lord, right? Um, so we we have seen them converse. We know that they are articulate, though their uh, uh, voice is cold. Notice that the breath of them sends him, sets him shivering. Um, now just shivering, he, he doesn't, develop any long-term effects of this, apparently, right? He doesn't even have to go for a lie down after this, um, much less end up in the houses of the healing. So the black breath doesn't seem to be a thing uh, to the same extent here, clearly. Um, but I love the, uh, I love the fact that uh, he mouths off to them. And notice we've seen that several times, right? Um, the Nazgul get guff from everybody around here, right? They get guff from uh, from Gaffer Gamgee, right? From Farmer Maggot, and now from Butterbur. Um, uh, I don't know if you recognize the quotation. My subtitle is uh, one of my favorite Sam quotations. Um, it's uh, when he uh, when he is rebuking Faramir. Uh, when he, bristling with wrath, uh, uh, gives Faramir a dressing down uh, in Ithilien while Faramir is interrogating them in front of all of his men. Um, uh, See here, Captain, says Sam, when he's... uh, uh, In the tone the narrator tells tells us, which he used to use uh, with youngsters about trips to the orchard, you know, when when youngsters offered him what he called sauce. Um, uh, So anyway, just fun to see Butterbur... Uh, kind of giving it back to the Black Riders here. I, we have to draw the conclusion that the Black Riders are just, they're not that intimidating. It's not, I think, that they're less powerful, but the idea of the uh, in, the the very great power of the presence of the Nazgul just seems not to be uh, significantly developed. At this point, um, they don't just they just don't have that big of an impact on people. I mean, they're kind of intimidating, but no more intimidating than any other probably dangerous strangers. Right. Um, There's this there are still these glimpses of something special and sort of specially bad about them. 
um, namely the the shivering, right? Uh, and uh, you know the gaffer's comment about it gave me quite a shudder, right? Um, but you know the Nazgul, as we come to know them later on, are going to give you more than a shudder. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Veronica, I agree that that both the the shivering and that association with coldness does sound. Uh, Veronica was just saying that it, it, it sort of sounds like, um, you know, the, the, the cold breeze that's supposed to accompany ghosts. I agree. Um, it's not that we don't get any sense that there's something unnatural about them, right? And yet, although everybody finds them strange, um, nobody... We don't see anybody just running in terror. In fact, far from running in terror, we see them lipping off to the to the Black Riders, right? Uh, again, Farmer Maggot, Butterbur, and Gaffer Gamgee. Now, those are three good characters, right? I mean, those are three stalwart fellows, so it doesn't mean that everybody would react like that. Um, and in fact, we'll see examples of somebody who doesn't react like that. Um, but still, still, they, again, this is clearly not, uh, that's not the way that the uh, soldiers of Gondor responded to the Nazgul uh, in uh, the Siege of Gondor in the Return of the King. Okay. Anyway, here goes uh, the rest of Butterbur's conversation with them. Baggins, said I, he ain't with them. If you are looking for a hobbit of that name, he went off east this morning with Gandalf. At that name, he drew in his breath and sat up. Then he stooped at me again. Is that truth? He said, very hard and quiet. Do not lie to us. I was all of a Twitter, I can tell you, but I answered up as bold as I could. Of course it's the truth. I know Gandalf and he and his friend were here last night, I tell you. At that, the four of them turned their horses and rode off into the darkness without another word. Now, Mr. Hill, what do you make of all that? I hope I've done right. If it hadn't been for Gandalf's orders, I'd never have given them news of Baggins nor of anyone else. For these black men mean no good to anyone. I'll be bound. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Raven King, I agree. It's, um, uh, uh, uh. The I was all of a Twitter uh, does sound a little different in the modern world. Um, but uh, yeah, Yana says one has to wonder if Butterbur would have been able to keep up the lie had he known the truth. And I agree. Um, it, it's uh, it certainly does seem, you know, Yana, to put it uh, to put it simply right, to put it gently. Gandalf seems wise to have um uh, told Butterbur exactly what he did. It's clear that Butterbur really believes that uh, uh, the Hobbit with Gandalf was Baggins, right? Now, I do believe that he might have had the fortitude to deny information to the Nazgul, right? Had he, you know, had Gandalf said to him, you know, my ba- my you know the, you must not betray my companion baggins i am i am spiriting him away and no one must know um i don't think you know i i i can see him managing not to rat gandalf out right and say that um but could he have maintained an actual lie um he believes that it is baggins right so uh, if Gandalf had really let him in on the whole thing, this totally isn't Baggins, right? But tell him that it is. Uh, I'm not sure if he'd been able to carry that off uh, either. 
Uh, but uh, but Tony, yeah, notice uh, he remembers all the things, right? He remembers both of the things that uh, that Gandalf tells him to remember. So the idea that Butterbur is a little forgetful comes in, right? But it's not yet uh, it's not yet really taking hold. It's not yet having any any effect. After Butterbur leaves, Trotter rebukes Frodo. Frodo is just asked if Butterbur is safe. Is he safe? cried Trotter, throwing up his hands. Yes, he's safe. Safer than houses. But why give him any more to puzzle about than is necessary? And why interfere with Gandalf's plan? You're not very quicker. It would have been plain at once to you that Gandalf wanted it believed that the hobbit with him was Baggins, precisely so that you would have a better chance if you were still behind. Remember, Frodo has just told Butterbur that he is Baggins, right? Um, he spilled the whole, you know, he spilled all the beans just now. And what about me? Am I safe? You're not sure, I know that, and yet you talk to Butterbur in front of me. However, I know now all that he had to say, and at least it will cut short what I still had to tell you, which was mostly about those black riders, as you call them. I saw them myself. I should say that seven all told have passed through Bree since Monday. You won't pretend any longer that you can't imagine what interest your real name might have. There is a reward offered for anyone who can report that four hobbits are here, and that one of them is probably a Baggins after all. Um, yeah, safe as houses is uh, 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 an old an old British saying, Carita. Uh, 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 um, I'm not exactly sure ultimately when it comes from, um, but it's an old it's an old saying. Um, oh yeah, he's safe. Safe as houses. Safer than houses in this case. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, 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 they still, they, it's still a current uh, phrase. You can still hear uh, British people using that. Um, so, oops. So, so he's safe. It is safe. Um, but I think it's, this is an interesting dynamic that we get with Trotter. The distrust of Trotter, the extent that, the, 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 um, the extent to which Trotter has to go in order to prove himself is still not very great. It's still less than it's going to be in the published text, which makes sense because he's a hobbit, right? So there's already this fundamental likeness and familiarity between them. Um, when it's this strange man that they're meeting in the pub in the later version, uh, he's got a lot further to go to show that he's trustworthy and that they should go travel with him, right? Uh, Trotter seems to have less of an uphill battle, and so therefore uh, his rebuking Frodo for Frodo's um, carelessness uh, and undermining of Gandalf's plan. Now, Gandalf has a brilliant plan and Frodo's blowing it, right? Um, Sets up, I think, a really interesting dynamic between Frodo and Trotter. And again, if you think about it, it's another thing which is kind of an interesting effect of having Trotter be a hobbit. Um, Who's the leader, right? Trotter is clearly the leader of their party, but Frodo is kind of the leader of the party as well. He's the center of the party, right? But, um, you know, the the sort of what exactly is sort of the relationship between Trotter and Frodo. One of the effects of this passage at this stage, right, here in phase three, is to suggest that uh, there's a a clear hierarchy, right? Frodo may be the ring-bearer. Frodo may be older and wiser than the other hobbits who came with him, right? Um, but he's still a complete noob compared to Trotter, uh, and Trotter has to keep his eye on him, right? So, 
um, it really kind of establishes Trotter's credentials, not just in is he trustworthy, which is the explicit subject, but is he worth listening to, right? Not just can he keep a secret, but is he worth listening to? Um, is he going to be any good? Is he going to be any help, right? So in a sense, this kind of helps to establish Trotter's uh, uh, credentials in that sense. Okay. I should not be too sure that they have all gone right away, said Trotter, or that they are all ahead of you and chasing after Gandalf. They are cunning, and they divide their forces. I can still tell you a few things you have not heard from Butterbur. I first saw a rider on Monday night, east of Bree, as I was coming in out of the wilds. I nearly ran into him, going fast along the road in the dark. I hailed him with a curse, for he had almost run over me, and he pulled up and came back. I stood still and made no sound, but he brought his horse step by step towards me. When he was quite close, he stopped and sniffed. Then he hissed and turned his horse and rode off. Yesterday I saw the four that called at this inn. Last night I was on the lookout. I was lying on a bank under a hedge of Bill Fernie's garden, and I heard Bill Fernie talking. He is a surly fellow and has a bad name in the Breeland, and queer folk are known to call it his house sometimes. I love that context in this, that, that comment about queer folk knowing to call it at Bill Fernie's house in this context. That is in the context of his describing. I, uh, I saw some black riders show up to Bill Fernie because, you know, queer folk are known to call it his house sometimes. Like raves, right? So, I mean, this is not, uh, you know, this is not he hangs out with dubious characters. You know, this is not like the, you know, the 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 pool sharks and the pickpockets hang out at Bill Fernie's house. Uh, since he seems to be comfortable, uh, you know, lumping the black riders in with there, it's it's either either he is sort of comfortable classing the black riders with the pool sharks and the pickpockets, or he's uh, uh, he's classifying. Every, the other visitors with the ringwraiths, right? You know, so yeah, you know, ringwraiths, occasionally trolls, you know, uh, sometimes uh, uh, shades of the unquiet dead show up to Bill Fernie's house. You never know, you know, it's the queerest folk that show up at Bill Fernie's house. I'm not sure which way to, to, to read that, but it, it's kind of interesting in context um, in that way. A couple other uh, snippets, and of course, as always, I feel like I haven't explicitly invited you to do this, but uh, Obviously, um, one of the main things that I'm doing today, uh, as, as you'll notice, I'm trying at least to kind of go through these passages a little bit quicker, um, pointing out the sort of the nuggets that jump out at me, the things that we can see, what's interesting about the story as it's developing at this point, what, what, what are sort of the, um, the, uh, the bits that leap out, because many of the, the uh, differences are fairly subtle. One of the other elements from this passage was the reaction of the writer when it meets Trotter. Right. It it, uh, you know, when he was quite close, he stopped and sniffed. Then he hissed, turned his horse and rode off. Now, we were talking about the sniffing. What are they sniffing exactly? And what, uh, you know, are they just following his scent like an animal would follow his scent? I mean, are they is there uh, do the invisible noses of the black riders work like dogs noses? Or is it merely some kind of physicalized metaphor for some other kind of detection, right? You know, some other kind of sensing that's going on from the Black Riders. Um, and I, it wasn't at all obvious to me which was the case previously. Now, this seems fairly clear. I would say it seems fairly clear to be physical. They seem to know Frodo's scent, 
possibly the scent of all four of them, um, which they could have picked up in Crick Hollow, right? Because um, he just comes over, sniffs uh, Trotter, and then immediately is like, nah, you're not the hobbit I'm looking for, right? And turns and rides away. Um, now, again, that doesn't rule out the fact that the sniffing is some kind of physicalized metaphor for some other perception that is going on. Like, you have the ring? And it, no, 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 no ring of power, no whiff of ring of power about you, so I'm out of here. That's possible. But I'm not 100% convinced of that, really. Um, this sounds like a much more purely physical interaction. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tom Hillman is remembering the dragon in Beowulf sniffing like an animal on the hunt. And Tom, of course, I can't help but remember the significance of Hobbit scent with Smaug in The Hobbit, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, um, as Gandalf points out in chapter one, he won't know Hobbit scent, right? He will never have smelled a Hobbit before, so he won't know what to do about it. And indeed, we see it confusing Smaug in chapter 12, in the conversations with Smaug chapter, um, that he's trying to place it, and he has no idea what is this thing that he's smelling, right? So, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, them scenting them uh, is uh, uh plausible. I mean, it kind of fits with what we've seen. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. I don't fancy that you wish to meet them. I don't. They give me the creeps. He ended suddenly with a shudder. The others looked at him and saw with surprise that his face was buried in his hands and his hood was drawn right down. The room was very quiet and still, and the light seemed to have grown dim. There, he cried after a moment, throwing back his hood and pushing the hair from his face. Perhaps I know more about these pursuers than you do. Now, one interesting thing about this, we looked at this passage before, in this, you know, even the same line that they give me the creeps line. Um, you know, we talked about Trotter's PTSD previously. One simple fact that interests me here is that it's still here, on not significantly altered uh, in its description. There's there are a couple interesting elements there, but but not majorly changed. But it's neither been removed nor has it been explained, and that's what really fascinates me. So the question, the mystery to me, kind of deepens when we hit this the second time. I mean, everything was so vague. Tolkien himself didn't know what the heck the writers were. He barely knew anyway by the time we got here last time. So it was in that sense kind of less troubling that Trotter, we had no idea what Trotter's past interaction with the writers could have been, right? But now some things have changed. And one of the main things that's changed is Mordor has changed locations. Remember, when we were in Bree the last time in the first phase... Uh, the Black Riders were still ring or uh, Barrow Whites, right? I mean, there was still the, at least that possibility that they were connected with Barrow Whites. Um, and, you know, Mordor was not all that far away and possibly to the north of here. So uh, we, you know, uh, uh, the idea that Trotter has interacted them with, he presumably could have had plenty of opportunities, just like he presumably could have plenty of opportunities to uh, go to the Barrow Downs and interact with Barrow Whites if he wanted to, right? So, Trotter's unknown history 
with the Black Riders uh, was um, was not explained, but it didn't feel puzzling. Now it feels more puzzling. Wait a second. Okay, so if these have come from Mordor, and Mordor is very far away, down in the center of, of the Great Lands, um, then what does that mean? Did he interact with them recently in a traumatic way that he's not telling them about? Right? I mean, is his PTSD about a recent event since they've been in the area? Uh, it doesn't seem like it. You think he'd have mentioned it, right? Um, or, I mean, even if he mentions it only mysteriously or elliptically, right? Um, or he has traveled far more widely. And that would seem to be the, the most obvious solution, is that Trotter is, uh, Trotter is much more widely traveled uh, than, uh, uh, than we might have imagined when we first met him uh, in the first draft. Um, but again, the, 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 the unexplained nature of his experience with them. Uh, and notice also they didn't recognize him, right? So whatever did happen didn't seem to impress the Black Riders any, right? When, they, when he sniffs them, he's not like, ah, Trotter, right? You know, how are your feet, right? You know, he does, there's nothing like that. Um, he's just, um, uh, you know, it's just a, not Baggins and off I go. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. And, and Stephen, we don't know. We still don't know who Trotter is, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a couple of you are, are concerned. Uh, Arthur and Yana are both concerned about the creeps language. You know, uh, like in what part of Middle-earth is the creeps part of the language? Um, and, uh, you know, Yana point, pointing out how colloquial it seems. I agree. Uh, my only answer there is that it's hobbit talk. Right. When Trotter is a hobbit, that he would say that, right, that he would describe what he is describing in fairly lighthearted colloquial terms seems to fit. Right. Aragorn, son of Arathorn, you cannot imagine saying they give me the creeps. Right. That's not how he would talk, but it's how a hobbit might talk. So I can I can buy that here. Um, but uh, anyway, so, yeah, the uh, the mystery here, I don't I don't understand. I don't uh, um it makes me feel more frustrated that I don't know what's going on. Um, okay. Right you are, said Mr. Butterbur. I hope I'll not forget the one thing drives out another when I'm busy with guests in the house. Baggins, did you say? Let me see. I remember that name. Wasn't there a Bilbo Baggins that they told some strange tales about over in the Shire? My dad told me that he had stayed in this house more than once. But your friend wouldn't be him. But your friend won't be him. He disappeared in some funny way nigh on twenty years back. Vanished with a bang while he was talking or so, I've heard. Not that I believe all the tales that come out of the West. No need to, said Gandalf, laughing. Anyway, my young friend here is not old Bilbo Baggins, just a relation. That's right, said the hobbit. Just a relation. A cousin, in fact. Now, here's where the narrative gets really interesting to me. Um, This is in the sequence of text when the narrative goes back and tells Gandalf's story from his point of view, right? We get this sort of close-up, contemporaneous view, not related speech, um, of Gandalf. And more, not just of Gandalf, but of the Black Riders as well. In fact, notice what we see here is the impulse, not exactly the first impulse that we've seen of this, but the first really major developed instance of this, 
of Tolkien telling two parallel stories and bouncing back between them, like the Two Towers effect, essentially, you know, what we're going to get in the Two Towers. Um, uh, you know, having the story of uh, of Gandalf and Legolas and, or, uh, yeah, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli at first, and then with Gandalf, and then jumping to Merry and Pippin right in their, in, you know, in, in their uh, imprisonment by the orcs, and Anyway, the way that, and then of course in book four or uh, book five rather, um, you know how the narrative is popping around at the beginning of the fellowship of the, uh, of the return of the king, from the Rohirrim to uh, uh, you know Pippin in the city, and um, that impulse of sort of interleaving these narratives, um, but yet we rarely see. Notice those examples that I was giving was generally him shifting chapter to chapter, right? There are fewer instances of the narrator leaving the main thread, right, and going and just giving us another parallel story. Um, I think this chapter is really fascinating that way. Um, when we get we get Frodo and company coming through, but only after we've gotten the whole story, right? We've been right there with Gandalf and Odo when they come in and meet Butterbur, which is what we're getting here in this passage. Um uh, when we go along with the Black Riders, right? And we don't just hear about how many Black Riders they were and what they do, but we accompany the Black Riders. Um, we do get that one scene, right, that remains in the published F- Fellowship of the Ring, the one at Crick Hollow, right, when the Black Riders are creeping up at the house and saying, open in the, in the name of Mordor. Um, and, of course, Gandalf isn't there uh, to drive them off with his sheaf of lightning. Um, but... Um, uh, so I mean, it's 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 not unheard of to have that kind of a and now from the enemy's point of view. Meanwhile, what are the Black Riders up to? Um, but the idea that this whole chapter was going to be interleaved in that way, um, in fact, the way that the narrative itself was, the narrative focus was going to be shifted, so that this chapter, the Bree chapter, the Prancing Pony chapter, was not just going to be the story of Frodo as he comes to Bree has his experiences in the Prancing Pony, and then gets out of Brie, right? That wasn't going to be the narrative. It was going to be like, the chapter was going to be what happened at Brie. And what happened with Frodo at Brie is only a subset, right? The most significant subset, but still only a subset of the total happenings at Brie. Um, And that's, I think, really fascinating, actually. Um... I'm not saying I think it's better or whatever. I just think it's really interesting that Tolkien was going to do that. And I think it's it's a fascinating kind of story. Let's look at some more of these passages. Here's when we're following the riders. But the riders halted, and one dismounted and came and smote on the door. What do you want? called Harry from inside. We want news, hissed a cold voice through the keyhole. What of? he answered, shaking in his boots. News of four hobbits riding on ponies out of the shire. Have they passed? Harry wished they had, for it might have satisfied these riders if he could have said yes. There was a threat and urgency in the cold voice, but he dared not risk a yes that was not true. No, sir, he said in a quavering voice. There's been no hobbits on ponies through Bree, and there isn't likely to be any. But there was a hobbit riding behind an old man on a white horse last night. They went to the pony. Do you know their names? said the voice. The old man was Gandalf, said Harry. A hiss came through the keyhole, and Harry started back, feeling as if something icy cold had touched him. "'You have our thanks,' said the voice. "'You will keep watch for four hobbits. If you still wish to please us, we will return.'" Uh, Those last two sentences are really good, aren't they? 
uh, you will keep watch. Again, there's that Nazgulish syntax for you there, right? It's, they don't even need to use the indi- the uh, the imperative mood. They, they they can just use the indicative and make it re- you know the indicative future tense. That's uh, uh, sinister enough when coming from a Nazgul. You will keep watch for four hobbits, if you still wish to please us. Notice, the Nazgul has not only noticed that he is afraid, but noticed that you know he can tell that this guy wants to please them, right? And then we will return. Statement of fact, right? We will return. Very ominous. Um, so, of course, there's the question raised in the notes about how exactly do the Black Riders know that uh, there are four hobbits together. As Christopher says, they could conceivably have guessed this, but um, they won't really have had that much direct information about Frodo and his party, so um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Carita, I agree. It's another effect, of course, of having this kind of narrative where we're following the Black Riders to this extent, but as Carita points out, if you take away the evil voice, his dialogue just sounds kind of matter-of-fact, right? I mean, you can imagine, I, I, mean, I was trying to read them all sinister, right? But you could easily do it differently, right? We want news. What of? News of four hobbits riding on ponies out of the Shire. Have they passed? Uh, Do you know their names? You have our thanks. You you will keep watch for four hobbits if you still wish to please us. We will return, right? So, creator, see if you do it like that. Sounds fine, right? Nothing mysterious, nothing ominous about it at all. Um, It is fairly matter-of-fact. And that's, I think, one of the interesting effects uh, of giving this much... Nazgulish dialogue, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, Nancy. If you wish to please us, is still a threat no matter how you look at it, right? I, I agree. That was the one phrase I couldn't pronounce cheerfully, even if I tried. You will keep watch for four hobbits if you still wish to please us, right? Uh, no matter how you do it, that has an edge to it. No question, I agree. Um, they're definitely threatening. And again, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that it doesn't come across that way. The, the context that Tolkien gives us to to give us cues for the tone hissed a cold voice, right, um, and uh, and Harry's fear and quavering, right. Um, even do you know their names? Said the voice, right. The fact that he's still speaking of it as a disembodied voice rather than said the guy on the other side of the door, right. And then the hiss coming through the keyhole, and then the icy cold touching him, right? So, so yeah, I mean, we get plenty of cues to read it as sinister and creepy and uh, uh, chilling. But, uh, but I agree, Karita, that the dialogue itself is not particularly intimidating, with Nancy, as you point out, that one exception. We have to notice in passing, right, when we're talking about Gandalf's plan and Gandalf's traveling, we had that super important moment, right? I tweeted about this yesterday. Nerethal, Gandalf's horse. Firefoot. The first name given to Gandalf's white horse was replaced later in pencil by the suggestions. Fairfax, Snowfax. And penciled in the margin is Firefoot, Erod, Aragorn. But these, later, but these latter were struck out. 
So yes, uh, uh, as I tweeted, that immortal moment when Aragorn first appears in the Fellowship of the Ring as a proposed name for Gandalf's horse. Uh, yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? That's the very first time we see the name Aragorn uh, is a rejected possibility uh, for the name of Gandalf's horse. Just think, man, we were this close to getting Bladorthin riding on Aragorn, right, uh, to uh, the uh, Battle of Pelennor Field. That would have been awesome. Um, and, uh, um, <laughs> yes, yeah, Jordan, exactly. You see the, the, the joke I'm making there. Uh, you know, Jordan Sonner was saying his horse's name would be Kingly, right? Exactly, just like the Aragorn's comment in the film. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, it's, uh, it's all good stuff. Um, I, uh, Fairfax, I think it's funny, too. Um, <laughs> yes, Raven King says Sir Thomas Fairfax, the horse. Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's funny. I mean, Fairfax kind of works, um, but it is funny in that it's kind of a normal surname, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't help th- uh, um, uh, help but think of Jane Fairfax from Jane Austen's Emma. You know, when I see that, that would have been uh, really uh, sort of uh, sort of odd. But uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, sorry. Just had to observe that in passing, right? Because that's a pretty darn big deal and really, really funny. Um, okay. Uh, yes, Veronica. It does make Aragorn an excellent name for a mountain lotro. Exactly. Or uh, for your own horse, or for your car, or whatever. Now you have uh, textual justification for that. Um, yeah, exactly, uh, 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 Mr. Osklas. That you know, the only thing that we're kind of left with here is the establishment of the of the facts as a second syllable. You know, we're still not there yet, right? But um, you know, we're we're moving towards that. Okay, speaking, of moving along, making good progress here. Gandalf implementing his plan, right? So this is the letter that he now leaves that Trotter gives to Frodo. Uh, this is, you know, this is uh, sort of replacing the uh, the notorious push along, you know, don't spend too long at Bree letter that uh, that he left in the first draft. The Prancing Pony, Wednesday, September 28th. Dear F, where on earth are you? Not still in the forest, I hope. Could not help being late, but explanations must wait. If you ever get this letter, I shall be ahead of you. Hurry on and don't stop anywhere. Things are worse than I thought, and pursuit is close. Look out for horsemen in black, and avoid them. They are perilous, your worst enemies. Don't use it again, not on any account. Don't move in the dark. Try and catch me up. I dare not wait here, but I shall halt at a place known to the bearer, and look out for you there. I am giving this to a ranger known as Trotter. Dark, rather dark, rather lean hobbit wears wooden shoes. He is an old friend of mine, and knows a great deal. You can trust him. He will guide you to appointed place through wild country. N.B. Odo Baggins is with me. Hurry on. Yours, Gandalf. Of course, the Gandalf is in runes. That's his uh, his his runic signature. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, Stephen, that is really funny, isn't it? I mean, and, and that I think is... Uh, I think that's humor on Gandalf's part. Stephen covers pointing out the irony of the sentence, not still in the forest, I hope. Right, um, 
Uh, and of course, Stephen saying if he were still in the forest, he wouldn't have received the letter, would he? So it's not possible that he could say yes to that question, uh, uh, or that you know that he would respond by still in the forest. Uh, I mean, obviously, Stephen, right? The the literal meaning of it is. Uh, this is Gandalf wondering, as I write this, where are you? I hope you're not still in the forest now, which of course he is. Uh, but uh, not in the forest when he receives the letter. But it is it is, it is, is sort of funny. And yeah, absolutely right. Um, if you ever get this letter, makes I mean, think of how much that changes Gandalf's tone from before, right? Um, uh, if you ever get this letter, I shall be ahead of you, right? Um, but he's not ruling out the fact that Frodo never is going to get this letter. It makes Gandalf... It shows how desperate Gandalf's plan is, right? Um, uh, and, but Stephen, I, you know, Stephen is wondering how well the, the not still in the forest, you know, if that is lighthearted, where on earth are you, are you not still in the forest, I hope? Sounds at least a little bit more light, certainly more lighthearted than if you ever get this letter, right? Um, and uh, I think it is. I mean, so... It, it seems to me to be Gandalf sort of still attempting a kind of, you know, Hobbit-esque bantering tone to some extent. I think there's at least there's at least a, a sort of a memory of that or an echo of that. Um, he's in a hurry, uh, but you know, I mean, even the question "Where on earth are you?" Um, is a useless question to ask in a letter. Right? There's no point of writing that in a letter because Stephen not only. If he's still in the forest, he's not going to get that letter. But, of course, if he does get that letter, he's not going to be able to answer the question, right? I mean, how's he going to be able to tell him where he is, right? So um, it seems to be done, not done actually, obviously, to glean information, but to um, to have an effect. And the effect that it seems like he, that, that, that he's having is one of uh, striking a non... You know, he doesn't start with... Uh, if you ever get this letter, I shall be ahead of you. Um, things are worse than I thought, and pursuit is close. He could have started with that, right? Things are worse, you know, dear Fro- dear F, things are worse than I thought, and pursuit is close. If he had started with that, it would have started the whole letter off on a very different foot, right? So it seems kind of Gandalfian, right, to start the letter off on a somewhat more lighthearted note. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yana, the NB at the end, I think... The, so, uh, nota bene, you know, note well, Odo Baggins is with me. NB is to draw attention to, like, that it's not a slip, it's not something weird, right? They know which Odo he's talking about. There's really only one Odo that it could possibly be. Everybody's favorite Odo, right? Odo Bulger. Um, the NB draws his, draws Frodo's attention to the fact that Ga- it's not a slip by Gandalf, right? It's not a typo on Gandalf's part. Uh, uh, Nota bene, right? Odo Baggins is with us, right? So this that's clearly like a written wink to, to, to Frodo. But it shows, as Trotter observes, Gandalf is being very cautious, right? A place known to the bearer, to appointed place, right? He won't name Weathertop because he doesn't want to give that away. Similarly, he's not giving away the thing about Odo. In fact, he's going to carry on the deception. He deceived Butterbur into actually thinking, as we saw previously, that uh, uh, Odo is the cousin of Bilbo Baggins uh, and genuinely a Baggins. Uh, and he is so he is here cluing Frodo into the deception that he has perpetrated on Butterbur and everybody else, um, and implicitly prompting him to keep it up as well. Note that Odo Baggins is with me, 
And you'll go along with that story, won't you, Frodo? And this is why Trotter is mad at him when Frodo blows it, right? And tells Butterbur the truth. And he's like, what are you thinking? Obviously, like, didn't you get, but he doesn't seem, Frodo doesn't seem to get what Gandalf is telling him there. But that does seem to be what he's telling him. Um, Try and Catch Me Up is interesting uh, because here we can see the sort of the intrinsic difficulty of Gandalf's position. He doesn't know exactly where Frodo is and he doesn't dare to seek him because the, the riders are right there and the riders could be pursuing him. They could try to follow Gandalf to, uh, uh, to Frodo, right? Um, so the best thing that he can do, the plan that he makes, is to try to draw them away and use Odo as bait to try to draw as many or maybe even all of them so that they just give up on the four hobbits, right? And the four hobbits are now irrelevant. We know where Baggins is and he's with Gandalf, so let's focus all of our forces on Gandalf. This is clearly Gandalf's own plan, right? To leave Frodo free. Um, So it's a good plan, but it's a desperate plan. And we can see that uh, try and catch me up. Uh, Before, of course... It's similar to what Gandalf said in his old letter back in the first phase, but there it was just push along, right? Um, and it seemed a little bit like, you know, I'm I'm going on, try to you know, you c- catch up with me, right? He's driving a wagon, he's going pretty slow, he's not in a big hurry, so you should, you know, if you don't uh, if you don't fall asleep or have too much beer, you should be able to catch up with me, right? Here, I'm drawing the black riders away on horseback, right? While you're on foot or at best on ponies, you know. Uh, uh, they have very little chance of being able to catch up with Gandalf. That seems a really desperate hope on Gandalf's part. He really wants to find Frodo and to get reconnected with Frodo, but he knows that he himself can't look for Frodo, so the best he can do is just kind of hope that uh, that Frodo is going to be able to, um, uh, to to catch up with him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going. We still have an Odo Baggins issue, right? We still have an Odo issue. Uh, this is the note that Gandalf now leaves in the rocks on top of Weathertop. Wednesday, October 5th. Bad news. We arrived late Monday. Odo vanished last night. I must go at once to Rivendell. Make for Ford beyond Trollshaws with all speed, but look out. Enemies may attempt to guard it. G. Odo! cried Mary. Does that mean that the riders have got him? How horrible! Our missing Gandalf has turned out disastrous, said Frodo. Poor Odo! I expect this is the result of pretending to be Baggins. If only we could have been... If only we could have all been together. Um, Frodo's reaction strikes me as a little bit odd. Um, I mean, in a sense... I mean, obviously, Mary's reaction is not at all odd, right? Poor Odo, right? How horrible! They got him! Um, that's, That's awful. Uh, Frodo's, both halves of Frodo's uh, reaction seem to me a little bit strange, right? Our missing Gandalf has turned out disastrous. Well, I mean, yes and no, Frodo, right? I mean, on the one hand, Gandalf's plot worked. The only disaster is that now if they've gotten Odo, they'll figure... I mean, of course, I mean, obviously, we all lament the death of, of Odo Bulger, but let's be honest, he's been, ex- he's been extraneous for a long time, right? <laughs> We're look- we've been looking for a way to get rid of Odo. Tolkien has done everything that he could to get rid of Odo. Now he's finally taken the last step, right? He's going to actually kill him off, and that will finally put paid 
to the Odo back, the Odo Bulger story. Uh, so we're finally going to get it back down to four hobbits, even if we have to kill one in order to get it there. Uh, but anyways, that's sort of the, the, the sort of the funny sideline that I that I found to that. But um, but anyway, again, so clearly the only absolute disaster is that they they now will find out that in fact it was a blind. Uh, he doesn't have the ring, and so they will have to conclude either a that uh, Gandalf took the ring from Baggins and has it himself, which is of course not a non-zero possibility, or uh, that they have to go back and now search for the other hobbits, which is, of course, what Gandalf was trying to convince them not to do. So um, so the loss of Odo, again, personally tragic for Odo and his friends, um, but uh, but not a disaster in the way that Frodo seems to suggest. I don't understand what he thinks would have been different. Um, if Gandalf couldn't protect Odo with the, you know, with the five of them, that is the four of them plus Trotter, have been able to do better, right? I mean, it seems, if anything, um, their missing Gandalf has turned out to be fortuitous because at least it enabled Gandalf to do his, for a time anyway, to do his I'm going to draw off the pursuit thing. If he hadn't, would they have escaped from Bree? I mean, if there were still seven riders carefully watching Bree, would, would, would even Trotter's experience in the wild have been able to prevent them being caught by the Black Riders who are following them by scent for crying out loud? Um, I don't think so. so. I mean, if Gandalf had been with them. So, I, as I say, I don't, um, um, uh, I don't really, uh, I, I, don't, I don't really follow Frodo's line of thought there at the end. Um, yeah, the question of, you know, several of you are saying, like, it kind of undermines Gandalf a little bit to suggest that he, you know, the writers just kind of nabbed Odo and he didn't even notice, right? Uh, he disappeared. Don't know what happened, right? You know, he did, you know, he's not like, was in climactic confrontation with writers and Odo was a casualty, right? It's not that. It's just like, I don't know, like one minute he was there, next minute he was gone. So it does kind of suggest, well, the combination, right? That uh, Gandalf is not exceptionally powerful and that uh, they are sneakier than uh, uh, than he uh, you know than we've than we've really seen um, James I I, 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 I I agree I can see I can understand Frodo's statement as merely an expression of that particular feeling James Lebeck saying you know I I wish I could have been there maybe I could have done something if that's essentially what Frodo's statement boils down to then yeah yeah I can I can I can see that um, even James I would add something like Things have been going wrong ever since Gandalf didn't show up. I wish things hadn't started going wrong and maybe, you know, things could have just gone smoothly. You know, a nice, smooth, easy trip to Rivendell. You know, again, I can understand it if it's just something like that. Um, But, uh, yeah. Anyway. um, Sorry, trying to keep my voice here. But at least... I mean, it's sad, but at least there's good news, right? Tolkien has finally divested himself of Odo Bolger once and for all. Um, <laughs> we even have a commemorative dinner, right, uh, for, for Odo. Here's the in the dell under Weathertop. Old Gandalf has been here then, said Sam to Falco. These packets of cram show that. 
I never heard of anyone but the two Bagginses and the wizard using that stuff. Better than dying of hunger, they say, but not much better. I wonder if it was left for us, or if Gandalf is still about somewhere near, said Falco. I wish Frodo and the other two would come back. Notice, again here, we get conversation between Sam and Falco, um, you know, Sam and soon-to-be Pippin, uh, in the dell while the others are away. So, the, again, notice the increased freedom in which Tolkien is, is, is popping the narrative and the point of view back and forth, right? Um, we, we know that Sam and Pippin, st- they still stay behind um, while Frodo and, and, uh, and, and Mary and Strider go up the hill um, in the published version. But we never get things told from their point. They tell us about what they found after we get back down there, but we don't ever get conversation with them while the others are gone. Anyway, Sam was more grateful for the cram when the others did not return, hurrying back to the dell. Oh, sorry, when the yeah, when the others did not return, hurrying back to the dell with their alarming news. Uh, there was a long journey ahead of them before they could expect to get help, and it seemed plain that Gandalf had left what food he could spare in case their own supplies were short. It, it is probably some that he did not need after poor Odo's disappearance, said Frodo. But what about the wood? I think they must have collected it on Tuesday, said Trotter, and were preparing to wait here in the camp for some time. They would have to go some distance for it, as there are no trees close at hand. Um, <laughs> that, that, uh, that line cracks me up, and I don't know why. I mean, it's a macabre sense of humor, perhaps, but... Uh, the idea that they're feasting on the food that was meant for Odo, but poor old Odo doesn't need it anymore. So, uh, uh, tuck in <laughs> my fellows. Um, uh, or even like of Gandalf making that calculation, you know, of Gandalf being like, all right, I've got, I've got to take off. Well, I've got this food, right. You know, now that, now that Odo, that, that bottomless hole is not with me anymore. I can just chuck a bunch of this food that I brought along for his sake. Uh, anyway, it's just all of it, um, uh, strikes me as kind of, uh, uh, kind of funny. Um, but again, notice here, it seemed to be at Weathertop. Um, is the um, uh, it seems at Weathertop is Gandalf's plan to try to like if he can if he can hide up here, right or fort up here. Well, he doesn't want to fort up because he doesn't want the Black Riders still around. Um, in a sense, of course, it's super risky for him to wait to try to meet Frodo uh, because he's deliberately drawing the Black Riders off after him. If they catch up with him. They're going to be right there. So if Frodo tries to get there, he'll be going right through a ring of Black Riders to get to Gandalf. So, you know, Gandalf eventually moves on. Um, so that dilemma between I want to wait for him, I want to get, you know, I want to find Frodo, and I'm deliberately drawing the Black Riders after me, so maybe actually my goal should be to get my person as far away from Frodo as I possibly can um, really seems to be... Uh, really seems to be, uh, 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 you know, sort of in play. But again, in this version... So, in other words, I guess what I'm saying is Gandalf's plan is way better this time than it was the last time, right? I mean, it makes sense. He's, he's thinking it through it. Now, you know, we, we have a Gandalf plot thread that fits with the main plot thread now, right? Whereas the old one increasingly didn't fit as we went along. Um, it still fits, but we see sort of... In, there, there's almost a sense in which Gandalf is still uncomfortable with it, Right? Um, uh, In a manner of speaking. Uh, Okay. Trotter's explanation after the attack on Weathertop, which, of course, as you know, because it was already almost almost exactly like the published text, uh, you know, the attack changes very little. 
I think I understand things better now, he said in a low voice. Our enemies knew the ring was here, perhaps because they have captured Odo, and certainly because they can feel its presence. They are pursuing Gandalf, but they have now drawn, drawn off from us for the time, because we are many and more bold than they expected, but especially because they think they have slain or mortally wounded your master, so that the ring will inevitably come soon into their power. Here we have Trotter answering a question that I get asked all the time. This has got to be in my top ten of Tolkien questions I have fielded in the last ten years. Do Balrogs have wings? You know, uh, uh, why didn't Gandalf figure out earlier that the ring, you know, the Bilbo's ring was a ring of power, you know, was uh, uh, the ruling ring? Um, but this is one. It's definitely in the top ten. Are orcs and goblins the same thing? Um, one of the other big is why did they run away? Right. I mean, they were there, right? Uh, you know, he stabbed, why does he stab Frodo and then run off? Um, and there's an argument to be made. I wouldn't make this argument, but there is an argument to be made. Um, well, actually, I, I would make this new argument uh, that Peter Jackson was trying to answer that question when he has Aragorn set them all on fire, right, in the fight scene. We get an epic fight scene on top of Weathertop and Aragorn kicking Nazgul butt and setting people on fire, right? And that is the film's answer to the question. Why did they run away? Why didn't they just finish off Frodo right then? Uh, Peter Jackson's answer is they would have done, right? He was about to, except um, uh, except Aragorn comes in in the nick of time and saves the day. Now, I, that's a perfectly respectable answer to the question. And as you can see, it's actually kind of close to the answer. Um, the only difference is that it's not Aragorn, son of Arathorn, with his sword and his torches, uh, which drives away the rangers, but rather these five hobbits who are unexpectedly plucky, right? Um, they didn't expect it. We are many and more bold than they expected. Um, he suggests that... So... Trotter does seem to be suggesting that uh, the ringwraiths are, well, not necessarily afraid of them, exactly. Uh, that is to say, uh, they ran in terror when we began to resist them, right? I don't think that's what Trotter even means, right? Um, but he does suggest that they withdrew knowing that the ring was there, right? They knew the ring was there, but they withdrew for the combination of the two reasons, right? First, they were being resisted. And second, they knew that there was no point in staying. They didn't need to stay because they thought he had been slain or that he had been mortally wounded. Um, now, it's interesting to me that Aragorn doesn't talk exactly this way. Aragorn, you know, there's, there's the very, the, obviously the parallel conversation that you'll be remembering between Aragorn and Sam the morning after Weathertop. Um, he does say, I don't think they expected to be resisted, but that's all he says. He doesn't say, we are many and more bold than they expected. And I think it's a good choice that Tolkien changed that. If Aragorn, son of Arathorn, had said that, it would have sounded arrogant, because clearly... With the five of them, right, the four hobbits plus Aragorn, 
you know, if there's one guy who's there, for, again, Peter Jackson was right about that, right? If there's one guy that is going to be able to scare them off, it's clearly Aragorn, right? So uh, it would have sounded condescending and, and arrogant of Aragorn to be like, we were obviously more bold than they expected. You know, no problem. I'm happy to help, right? Uh, and it, that would have that could have come off really oddly, I think. Um, instead, he merely, in the published text, he merely emphasizes the second half. Right. I fear they believe that your master has taken a deadly wound. Um, so, yeah, they don't need to confront any level of resistance, right? Uh, because they believe that, you know, they have already achieved their end. So the question, so one answer to this question that I get all the time, you know, the, the simplest answer is, you know, why did they run away and not complete their mission? Well, they believe they had completed their mission, actually. I mean, they don't have... He didn't have the ring in his own hand, right? Um, but you know what? I'm not sure that that's necessarily what they needed to do. Seize the ring. What does the... What does the Witch King say to Frodo at the Ford de Bruinen? Give us the ring? hand over the ring or else um come back to Mordor we will take you right um they say the ring the ring but it's not obvious exactly what they mean by that um it's not clear to me that taking it from Frodo is what their plan is all along. It seems to me quite likely that their plan is to take Frodo, still bearing the ring, and bring him to Mordor. Um, I don't know that maybe it's even possible uh, maybe it's even possible that Sauron doesn't want the Witch King to have the ring, right, or to be holding the ring. Um... But, uh, yeah, so basically, when they stab him with the Morgul blade, remember, they have no idea that he's going to be able to resist it for as long as, as he does. They think he's going to become a wraith, like, within 24 hours, right? Um, so, again, this is not even, like, a tactical retreat. Like, they, they've done the job. When he is theirs, he will put on the ring and come to them and be a slave to them, and they'll take him back to Mordor, right? Uh, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished almost as neatly as it could possibly be. Right. Um, so. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's anyway. OK. Um, but we can't miss as we pass by here. There's still resistance. Some level of resistance that the hobbits were able to put up affected them. Right. The fact that they even notice the Hobbit's actions and classify it in the category resistance, right, shows that there's some efficacy to that. Uh, and that seems to me important uh, to keep in mind. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Stephen, Stephen's calling me on this. Stephen Covers points out, well, the, so, so maybe having a few more Hobbits around might have driven off the riders and saved Odo when he was kidnapped. You know what? St you're right. You're right, Stephen, uh, because there they were uh, they were there there were many and more bold. If there were many more bold hobbits around, maybe they could have saved o saved Odo. I I'm I'm with you, Stephen. You're you're right. You're right. Absolutely. Okay. 
uh, Glorfindel shows up, and we get a shock. Hail and well met at last, said Glorfindel to Frodo. I was sent from Rivendell to look for your coming. Gandalf feared that you might follow the road. Gandalf has arrived at Rivendell then, cried Merry. Has he found Odo? Certainly there is a hobbit of that name with him, said Glorfindel. Oh, and he's back. But I did not hear that he had been lost. He rode behind Gandalf from the north out of Dimril Dale. Out of Dimril Dale? exclaimed Frodo, which doubtless does not surprise Frodo for the same reason it surprises us. Yes, said the elf, and we thought you, we thought that you also might go that way to avoid the peril of the road. Some have been sent to seek for you in that country, but come, there is not time now for news or debate until we halt. We must go on with all speed and save our breath. Hardly a day's ride back westward there are horsemen searching for your trail along the road and in the lands on either side. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, Odo's back. <laughs> It's just no matter what Tolkien does, right? He even killed him off, <clears throat> and Odo keeps coming back. He cannot shed Odo Bulger, right? Um, yeah, now it seems like he was found, right? But n- maybe he wasn't ever even lost. And I forget, I'm sorry, I neglected this comment at the time. One of you I was pointing, I meant to come back to this, but I forgot to come back to it. Um, uh, I forget who it was. Sorry. Um, uh, that uh, maybe Gandalf was laying a false trail with his note, right? Maybe Odo hadn't disappeared. Um, but that seems a little bit odd. Like, why would he do that, right? You would think if he was lying in case the note was seen by the enemy, he would have lied the other way. Right and been like, I still totally have Baggins. Like, don't worry, the ring is safe with me. I'm off, right? And I'm headed that way, right? You'd think that would be the false trail that he would probably leave. Um, so I don't know that I buy that, but... Uh, oh, yeah, that, M- Matthew, thank you. Thank you, yes, good. So it could be a ruse. And this would seem to lend support to that, right? When he comes in, he's like, oh, what, lost? No, he was never lost, right? Nah, I was just joshing with you, right? I was just having you on. Um, and uh, Stephen, exactly, yeah, I I don't think I had fully articulated it in that way in my mind, but Stephen, it was it was reminding me of the song, The Cat Came Back. Um, uh, yeah, Odo, you just, he, he wouldn't stay away. Uh, <laughs> uh, yep, yep. That's exactly, that's exactly it. Um, Dimril Dale, of course. Really interesting, right? Um, Dimril Dale, before Dimril Dale becomes associated with, uh, with Moria at all. Uh, it's another displaced name. Not quite as striking as Aragorn the horse, but still. Okay. So after they, now they're, they've arrived at Rivendell. You will soon hear all you wish to know, said Gandalf. We shall have a council, as soon as you are well enough. At the moment I will only say that I was held captive. You, cried Frodo. Yes, laughed Gandalf. There are many powers greater than mine, for good and evil in the world. I was caught in Fangorn, and spent many weary days as a prisoner of the giant Treebeard. It was a desperate, anxious time, for I was hurrying back to the Shire to help you. I had just learned that the horsemen had been sent out. And I think we'll stop there. We'll stop with Giant Treebeard. Um, we're out of time, even considering that we started late. Uh, we're now 
officially later than that, um, and I want to let you go. Um, but that's kind of shocking, isn't it? Uh, so he was trapped in Fangorn as a prisoner of the giant Treebeard. Um, so, um, uh, this is pretty striking. So my, my, uh, the thing I want to begin with next time, what does this mean for Treebeard? What is the relationship between the giant Treebeard of Fangorn and the Treebeard of Fangorn that we come to know? Um, is it the case? Would it be accurate to say, when Tolkien first conceived of Treebeard, the end, he was evil, and then Tolkien decided later on to make him good? My argument, next, I'll give you, I won't, I won't be too much of a tease. My argument that I'm going to make at the beginning of class next week is no. I don't think that's a fair description of this at all. I do not think that Treebeard the Ent was originally evil and later on became good. Um, but I will uh, make that argument. Yeah, exactly, Tom. There are things that look like Ents, but ain't. And uh, uh, Giant Treebeard is definitely one of those. Very good. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we'll, 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 um, we'll come back to this next time. Um, but, uh, okay, Thanks very much, everybody. I got those almost all right. I, I, and once again, I'm two only two uh, passages short of uh, my full list, uh, but uh, we're 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 moving along. Um, so the next chapter, the end of the third phase. Once again, we get to Rivendell, and once again, Tolkien starts rethinking things, right, and going through and and examining and looking forward and everything. So uh, I'm gonna we're gonna spend all of next class looking on that one chapter where. Uh, you know, now that we've 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 covered all the ground again the second time, it's time to uh, to push things along. Where are we going from here? So that's what I wanna that's what I wanna focus on for next time. Uh, thanks very much, everybody. Uh, my voice held out, so that's really great. Hopefully, I, I don't get sicker. I'm nervous because my wife, who who did uh, 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 give me this disease, uh, is um, she lost her voice for like three days. Uh, so I'm hoping that mine holds out, uh, at least that it'll be back by next Tuesday. Um, so we'll see, keep your fingers crossed and we'll see how things go. But thanks everybody for joining me. Really fun class tonight. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.